Well, good morning, 11 a.m. Randolph Street family. It is so good to see you. You 9 o'clock folks, get out of here. What are you doing? Come on, 9 o'clock folks. They're the ones that can't stop talking. Oh, I can't wait till these 9 and 11 a.m. days are over and we're all back in one room together as one church family. We are grateful you are here. Uh, not only here, but those of you, uh, our Randolph Street family, who's joining us online for our 11 a.m. service, uh, we love you. We are praying for you. We look forward to what the Lord has for us today. I can tell you this because I've already been through it. Uh, the songs, the readings of Scripture, and without question, the sermon uh, will deeply strengthen your faith today. I trust you have come with open hearts ready to receive what the Lord has for you this day. This is the Lord's day. This is his day that he has set apart for us to engage as the church in worship. My brothers and sisters, you have a full plate before you right now. Uh, come and feast up on the Lord and enjoy his presence and his promises. Just a few announcements. If you would grab your bulletin, uh, just quickly a couple of things I want to take note of. Thank you for those who participated in the Crossroads Walk for Life uh, I know they are deeply grateful for your ministry and your partnership with them. This is a much-needed ministry in our city. Uh, we have a number of folks in our church family who either work for them or volunteer for them. We are deeply grateful for this ministry. Thank you for serving them as you did. Let me encourage you to join us Wednesday evening. Uh, Pastor Tim will be leading our ministry update. We do this the first Wednesday night of every month. It is online only. Uh, you can catch it on our website, YouTube, Facebook, whatever other platforms we have out there. Uh, this coming Wednesday evening, he's interviewing Justin Williams, uh, who pastors in Salyersville, Kentucky. Justin is a dear brother in Christ. Uh, he's a part of our kind of informal network, and he has incredible ministry in a really hard place. Uh, you will want to get to know him, so join at 7. Pastor Tim will be interviewing him. Uh, it'll help you pray for him and help you get to know some other good churches throughout our region. This is a brother who loves uh, God. He practices expository preaching. He loves the doctrines of grace. Justin is a young man that we are investing in, we partner with. Uh, join us Wednesday. I mean, how much more can I do to sell that, okay? Join us Wednesday evening at 7 o'clock. When you walked in this morning, you should have received an additional handout to your bulletin. This is something new we started in light of who knows what's going on for the next six or so months. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a prayer God, uh, scripture God for us to join together as a church uh, one thing we can do together, regardless of COVID, and we should be doing together, is praying. So we're putting before you a number of items to pray for. One, your care groups, your elders, your deacons, but specifically pray this week for your care groups. We're highlighting a Randolph Street missionary, Sir McFarland. You will see that in, in this uh, handout. Pastor Tim has put together a lot of information on the McFarlands to really help us. Uh, we are also encouraging you to read with us. One chapter a day from the book of Philippians. We're encouraging you to memorize this week, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. There's a lot of noise going around in our culture and society right now. And these next 30 days, that noise is not going to go down. All right? You and I need our hearts focused upon God and his word. And we need to do that together. This is just one resource to help you toward that end. We will be saying much more about that in the coming weeks. With that said all of that out of the way. Uh, let us now turn our hearts to the Word of God. Psalm 113. 
Let us hear him call us this morning to what is most central in our lives as a church, and that is worship and praise of our God. So let us now hear this word. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth. He raises the poor from the dust, lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home and makes her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. Let the word set on our hearts this morning as we prepare ourselves to worship our great God together. Well, Father, your word calls us right now to that which is most important in our lives, and that is praise and worship to be rendered to you, our God. So that, that is what we gather for. We are, as this psalmist exclaimed, we are servants of the Lord. So therefore, praise your name, O God, your holy and glorious name. Blessed be your name. And as the psalmist wrote, may it be true of us and our lives and our local church. Praise your name from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to the setting of the sun, O God, may your name be praised among your people here at Randolph Street. Lord, you are high and exalted and lifted up. You are above all nations and your glory is above the heavens. You look down. You look far, far down upon creation because you are so exalted and lifted up. In all of your glory... In your exalted nature, you are good, gracious, and merciful. (laughs) Let us be drawn to that today, O God. Let us see you and let us marvel at your grace. I pray that for our church family gathered. I pray that for our church family who are joining us online this morning. Let us behold you, our God, and let us be swept up into this undeserved mercy that you have shown us as your people. We hear these songs, we recite the confession, we hear the scriptures read aloud, the word is preached to us this morning. Oh God, may this be one grand rehearsal of the promises that you have granted us in Christ. Encourage and strengthen your people here this day, oh Lord. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.
A reading from Paul's letter to the Philippians. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee as to zeal, a persecutor of the church as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfected, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made, has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. A reading from the Gospel of Matthew. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit, and the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Thank you, Keith, and worship team for leading us this morning. I trust your heart is full from the truth that we have heard, not only this time of worship and singing, but in the text that were read to you just a moment ago. Well, I need to introduce to you a new series, and I need to introduce to you our, our guest speaker. Now, if you were here last Sunday, you may be thinking, wait, we started our new series last week. Well, you're right. Uh, we started the book of Philippians last Sunday morning, and for the coming months, we will be diving in and digging through this incredible book. Our purpose behind starting the book of Philippians is there are few New Testament epistles like this epistle, if you will, that puts this Christ-centered passion before us as urgently as we found in this particular 
letter that Paul writes to the church at Philippi. And we thought, you know, this is a good season in light of all the noise we're hearing out here. In these next 30 days, that volume's not going to be cranked down any. We want our hearts focused on Christ. We want to earnestly pursue him. So that, that's why we're going after Philippians. Now, today we're starting another series that will occur the first Sunday of every month uh, for the next probably year or so. And that's a series entitled Doctrine Matters. So we'll be preaching these Doctrine Matters series on the first Sunday, every other Sunday of the month through the book of Philippians. And today we begin that series and launching that series for us is Dr. Stephen Wellam uh, from Southern Seminary. We have come to love this brother. I said during our 9 a.m. service, only by an act of sovereign grace can God take a Canadian and merge him into such a good relationship with a West Virginian church. But God has done that. We love this brother. We thank God for him. The gifts that God has given him, not only to serve at Southern Seminary, but to serve the church. And today we will benefit from that. He's introducing to us this Doctrinal Matter series, and his subject is the Doctrine of the Trinity. Now let me, I've already listened to this sermon one time. I can't wait to listen to it a second time. Um, He's going to touch the surface of it. But this truth is so central to everything we confess as Christians. And I'm praying that God will use this word this morning, this review of the doctrine of Trinity, to strengthen us in this most holy faith. The text he has asked me to read is from Ephesians 1. This is our text, right? Paul wrote it to to the early church, but this is our text. Ephesians chapter 1, listen now to the word of our God, verse number 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before and before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Let us pray together. Well, Father, as we now enter into this most holy time, as your word will be preached to us, I would pray for us who are listening here and at home, online, that our hearts would be attentive, our minds would be clear, that we would earnestly desire to not only hear your word this morning, but to embrace this truth and as we embrace this truth that your spirit then might shape and form us more and more into the image of Christ. 
So God, do that work now here in this room, in our homes. Do that good and holy work that only you are able to do. I pray for my brother. Thank you for Dr. Wallam, his wife Karen. Thank you for their ministry, not only in Louisville, but most especially here to us at Randolph Street. They are dear friends. We love them. We thank you for them. I pray that their ministry in Louisville, at Southern, and in their local church would continue to flourish and grow, that you would bring much fruit to their lives in this season. And Lord, today, that you would gift our brother accordingly. That you would give his mind clarity, his lips, his tongue, the ability to speak that truth that you have given to us in your word. May he shepherd your people well here this morning, those whom Christ has purchased with his own blood. So bless this time, Lord, as your word is now preached. We pray that for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Well, it's great to be with you this morning, and thank you, Pastor Jason, for your kind introduction. It's always great to be back uh, at Randolph Street Baptist Church in Charleston, even for these strange Canadians, you know. <laughs> great to be here. You're starting a new series, right? And it's a delight to hear. So I've been teaching at Southern Seminary for Many, many years, since 1999, it's just like a blur, but uh, it seems like yesterday, teaching in the area of Christian doctrine and Christian theology, and it's wonderful, wonderful, wonderful to have our local churches, right, taking doctrine seriously, right? We take Christian theology, we take doctrine seriously because we believe that God's Word is true and that doctrine... <laughs> is basically, right, if you think of Christian theology, we're taking all that Scripture says and we're seeking to understand it rightly, put together the full, whole counsel of God, the way God has given it to us, and believe it and to live it out, right? And if we don't do that, if we don't do doctrinal studies and if we don't think about uh, what we ought to believe and how to present that to the world eventually, right, we're just, we drift, right, we drift off, we hold to all kinds of views that we shouldn't be holding to, and when it comes to Christian doctrine, we're not talking about, you know, just getting uh, the latest uh, right about your favorite sports team or, you know, favorite, uh, you know, point of history or something, I mean, this is life and death, right, I mean, the gospel is central, and to know God rightly is to know life eternal. Right? We're reminded repeatedly in Scripture, right, to know the truth and to stand against error, right? Ephesians 4, right, Christ gives gifts to the church, leadership to the church, so that the church is not tossed back and forth by every wind of doctrine. Well, the very fact that Christ is to give gifts to the church means that it's quite possible that we are tossed back and forth, right? And you see that in the New Testament. You see that through church history. 
We see that in our present day. Right? The Lord Jesus commands that we take the gospel to the nations, right? The Great Commission. But we're to teach, right? We're to teach all that he has taught us, right? Which he teaches us a whole Bible, right? And how he is at the center of it and the fulfillment of it, right? And that te- that's doctrine, right? That's seeing how scripture is to be understood and applied, right? Elders, pastors, right? Titus 1.9, they're to hold to sound doctrine because it's possible to have not sound doctrine, right? And they're to refute those who hold to false doctrine. Well, that assumes then understanding, teaching, thinking through these matters, and the entire church. You can't just say, oh, it's just the pastor, just those elders, deacons, and so on that have to do this. You think of 1 Peter 3, the great apologetic passage or the defense of the faith passage, which is applied to the whole church, right? All Christians, whenever you're asked to give a reason for the hope that's in you, you need to be able to do so. What do you believe? Why do you believe it? Right? As we share the gospel with people, right? How do we then say this is what the Bible says and this is what Christian truth is and this is how we defend it? So doctrine, doctrine, doctrine matters, right? Truth matters. Theology matters, right? So exposition and theology together, perfect, perfect marriage, perfect combination, right? Now where do we start, right, in our study of doctrine? I guess you could start a number of places, but the best place to start, and indeed where the Bible starts, is starting with God, right? Sounds basic. At the heart of the Christian view, right, is who God is, We live in a generation that loves to focus on ourselves. Now, we have a place, right? We're made in God's image. Uh, We are to know him and so on, yet he's first, right? It's uh, we are second, third or fourth, right? But he is first, right? So that uh, as the Bible begins, it says God created, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is where we start. We start with the knowledge of God, right? But in starting with the knowledge of God and saying, who is the God of the Bible, right? We then seek to summarize really all the scripture says, and there's nothing more central then saying the God of the Bible is a triune God, right? The doctrine of the Trinity, right? From beginning to end, right, the Bible says there's one true and living God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? The triune God, the Trinity. Yet we hear very few messages on the Trinity, right? Uh, Very few people. Uh, reflect. We hear bits and pieces here and there. Uh, We're often confused. We'll see in a moment that many in our churches are confused over the doctrine of the Trinity, and so it's essential, right, to go back, lay the foundations to speak on this important subject, right? Let me just give you sort of three opening statements of why The doctrine of the Trinity is so vital, so important, indeed, life and death, right? If you misunderstand the doctrine of the Trinity, you misunderstand God, and you misunderstand the Bible, right? The first statement is, is that God as a triune God is at the the indispensable mystery, right? Is at the heart of all of the Bible, all of Christian theology, right? 
at who God is. God in three persons, one nature. God as one, yet three is who he is, right? You think of the Great Commission as the Lord Jesus tells us to go into the world and to preach the gospel and to baptize in the name of, right? It's the singular, the singular name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is triune. We can't understand him apart from it. As we look at the doctrine of the Trinity, we also get a sense, right? You think of many passages, but I'm thinking here of John 17, 5, where Jesus is in prayer to the Father. And he speaks of what's coming at the cross. And he says, you know, I've come to do your will, right? The hour is upon me, right? Glorify your Son, right? With the glory I shared with you, Father before the foundation of the world, right? When we think of a triune God, we think of before the beginning, a God who is in fullness of relationship, fullness of glory and fullness of love and fullness of communication, right? God as the God who is complete within himself. That is a glorious truth and that is central to the Bible, right? We can't understand God apart from it. The Trinity understands and presents God as he presents himself in Scripture. A second statement, though, is that the Trinity not only gets us to the heart of the doctrine of God and who God is, but it is what distinguishes the God of the Bible from all other conceptions of God and viewpoints and philosophies and religions and so on. We, We live in a very sort of pluralistic age, an age that says, oh, all views are equal, and uh, you can have any conception of God that you want. Well, the doctrine of the Trinity reminds us that there's the Bible's conception of God, there's the Bible's presentation of God as triune, and no other view compares to this, right? All cults, all religions, all even monotheistic religions, Islam, Judaism, and so on, deny the doctrine of the Trinity, right? This is what distinguishes us from everyone else, right? You have, you know, a lot of people try to make common cause with other viewpoints and so on. You can't on this issue, right? This is what divides us from everyone else. Do you believe in a triune God or do you not, right? And the Bible will say that all other notions of God and conceptions of God are all idols, right? This is what distinguishes us, right? And then thirdly, we can say that the Trinity is at the heart of the gospel, right? We all want to be gospel-centered. We want to be gospel people. But we can never understand the message of the gospel, the message of salvation, indeed, We'll never understand the whole Bible story apart from God as triune, right? I mentioned just a moment where at the heart of God as triune is God's perfection in himself. The God of the Bible is one who is alone God, one God, yet he's not lonely, right? He is complete within himself. He's the God who has shared glory, shared love, shared communication between Father, Son, and Spirit. He is the God who needs nothing. And in needing nothing, right, he has existence from himself. He has knowledge from himself. He has 
he's the very standard of what is right and wrong and good, right? What is good? God is good, right? God is the moral standard. He is the law, right? Now, of course, as you bring sin to bear with this kind of conception of God that the Bible gives to us, we've got a huge problem. (laughs) How does the God who is the standard of the universe, who will not deny his own glory who will not share his glory with anyone, who is jealous for his own name. All that's tied to the trinity of God's completion in himself. When we sin before him, do you think he's going to let us off the hook? (laughs) Do you think that he's just going to say, well, we'll just let bygones be bygones, right? No, no, no. God upholds his perfect holiness, his perfect love, his perfect justice, which demands for us, we're doomed, apart from him right? God, God saving us, God initiating salvation. Of course, that's the whole message of the Bible, isn't it? We not only need a father to initiate, to choose us, to save us, to call us, we need a divine son. We don't just need a human son. We need a human son. He must become incarnate. He can't die without being human. He has to represent us. But It's very, very important to see that we need a divine Savior, a divine Savior who will take, by becoming human, take his own demand in himself and bear our sin, right? We've been singing that our sin has been God's memory. He's erased it from his memory. The only way he can erase it from his memory is that it is fully paid for in the divine son, and we need a redeemer. The whole story of, or the spirit, the whole story of scripture in terms of the application. Our sin is so bad, not only before God, but we are dead in our sins, right? We don't just need a re-education program to make us right. We need new life. We need to be born again. We need to be raised from the dead, which is an act of God. And all of that in the Bible is attributed to the Spirit of God, right? If you don't have a divine Father, a divine Son, a divine Spirit, you don't know Christian salvation. You don't know the problem of sin. You don't know who God is. You don't know what salvation's all about. You don't know what the gospel's about. Because the gospel, first and foremost, is about what God has done, right? Not about, you know, all of the entailments for your life, but what's what God has done in initiating the triune God, Father through Son by Spirit, to save a people for himself, to meet his own demand in himself, and to justify us in Christ Jesus by making us alive by the Spirit. That's Trinity, right? And the gospel is centered there. Now, without triune God, we don't have the God of the Bible, (laughs) We are just like everyone else, and we have no gospel, right? So the doctrine of the Trinity is mighty, mighty important. It's life and death, right? The problem is, (laughs) is that our churches are pretty confused about this, right? I mentioned earlier in the 9 o'clock service a poll, right? And it's very interesting to see this poll. It's Ligonier Ministries, associated with R.C. Sproul, Um, And Lifeway has uh, joined together in a number of years, every other year, 2014 all the way now to 2020. And they've taken poll in America, and it's also happened in the United Kingdom as well. So you can compare United Kingdom to America, it's interesting there. So they asked about 3,000 people, U.S. population. 573 of them affirmed evangelical beliefs, 
right? So that distinguishes them from the 3,000. And then even more so if you have evangelical beliefs and evangelical affiliation. So I'm assuming church membership. That's 273. But if you just take the evangelical beliefs, we believe the Bible, we believe the gospel, we believe Christ as Savior, and so on. Those were evangelical beliefs. It's interesting to see as various theological questions basically tied, or we're picking up here, to the Trinity are asked. And what we see here is confusion, right? Confusion that demands instruction, right? So, for instance, right, the statement, there is but one true God who is three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, 96% said yes to that. Now, the 4% we're very concerned about, right? But the 96%, okay, that's a pretty high number. Okay, so all right, evangelical belief, they've got the Trinity, right? Okay, we got that right. But then, when you ask about the Son of God and the Spirit of God, now we're in big trouble. So this statement, Jesus is the first and greatest created being by God. Created. Well, we have now 65% of evangelical belief says yes to that. Now, of course, they may be confusing this with the incarnation. But that statement, right, is really what your Jehovah's Witness believes. It's what was denied in the early church. And the church had to reject this as heresy because Jesus, the Son of God, is not created. He's eternal. He's eternal. He's God the Son. But how do you match that with belief in the Trinity? Or the next statement is even more explicit. Jesus was a teacher, but he was not God. Well, clearly, if one affirms this, then you've denied the Trinity. So 96 believe in the Trinity, 96%. 30% believe that Jesus is not God. So obviously, there's massive confusion. And then when you add the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is a force, not a personal being. We have 46% affirm that, right? Well, the doctrine of the Trinity is... Father, Son, and Spirit are all persons. They're not forces, right? They are one true God. There's three persons, right? So now what this is telling us is that we've got some problems in our churches, right? So that's why we're looking at this. Doctrine matters, right? We have to clarify this, right? We have to then say, all right, this is what the Bible's saying. It's not saying those other things, right? So let's look at the doctrine of the Trinity in our time this morning by first just sort of saying, well, what is the doctrine of the Trinity? Uh, how do we, what's the meaning of the doctrine? How do we define the doctrine and so on? How do we understand it sort of in big picture sense, right? And then sort of look briefly at, you know, it can only be very brief, at some biblical data. Where do we get this from? Well, we get it from Scripture. We get it from a whole Bible, right? And then think of some of its application to us today, right? So first, the, the doctrine, right? The meaning of the doctrine. What do we mean by the doctrine of the Trinity. Well, before I give the positive, <laughs> I'm going to give the negative, right? Sometimes you have to say what not before you say what is true. And then you have to always say what not, right? It's probably a good teaching and technique, right? It makes it very, very clear then what we're not saying and what we are saying and so on. So as we say what's not the case, this really goes back to how the church had to wrestle with the biblical material, right? At the heart of the biblical teaching, is that God is one God, right? One true and living God. There's not two gods, three gods, many gods, one God. 
one God alone, creator and Lord, right? Yet there is, as we work across the Bible, there is threeness to God. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. How do we bring those two together? That's really your doctrine of the Trinity, isn't it? Well, one path that was rejected by the church and because it was not true to Scripture was saying God is one, yet Father, Son, and Spirit are not distinct. Distinct in the language will eventually be will be of persons. They're really the same, right? They're just putting different faces on one another, right? So there's really not a Father that's different than the Son, that's different than the Spirit. This is called modalism, right? So it's Unitarian, but God just reveals himself in different modes. So the Father in the Old Testament, Jesus in the Gospels, the Son and the Spirit in the book of Acts or something like that. But they're not simultaneously three, right? They're just various versions of the one, right? Unitarianism, right? Jesus-only people and oneness Pentecostals and T.D. Jakes and others like this. I mean, that's the view that's still around today and it was rejected because it doesn't hold hold together oneness and threeness simultaneously or you have what we have with the Jehovah's Witnesses right we have the and they were known in the early church as the Arians right the first council of the church at Nicaea in 325 AD had to deal with the Arian false teaching or heresy right so what does Arius say well He says there's one God, right? Everyone affirms one God, yet the Father alone is God. The Son and the Spirit, yes, they're distinct, right? So they're not flattening them like modalists. Yet the Son and the Spirit are not God, right? They are simply creatures. And most of the discussion was over the Son. The Spirit was basically just a kind of force or so. So the Son is a creature. And that statement in the Ligonier poll, Jesus is the first and greatest created being, is exactly what Arius said. He has created the Son. He may be the first creation. Through him, God sort of creates the world, but he is not the eternal Son. He is not God equal with the Father. And the same is said of the Spirit. So you have that rejected by the church because... The three are not God equal, right? And the one is preserved, but ultimately the deity of Christ, the deity of the Spirit are denied. Scripture will not allow that. So as we then look at what the church had to say no to, they then, and I'm going to read a statement here that we'll unpack Right? In all of our confessional statements, I'm simplifying it because as you actually go back into our confessional statements, they're, they're more complicated. They're precise in their language and it would take quite a while just to unpack all that. So I'm trying to get the highlight of it to emphasize the key points of what we mean by the doctrine of the Trinity. So here, we'll say it this way. There is one true and living God, right? We have to nail that down clearly. One God. We believe in one God and one God alone. But there are three persons in the Godhead, in the being of God. Right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. These three persons are one eternal God. Right. So we're having three, yet they are the one true God. The same in, so Father, Son, and Spirit are the same in 
their very being and nature, right? The language of the church is the Son is God equal with the Father. The Spirit is God equal with the Father, right? They're equal in power, glory, all of the attributes of God, authority, right? Although, and this is the threeness, they are distinguished. They're not the same. They're distinguished by their persons, right? They're distinguished by their person relations. They're distinguished by their person, the term for it becomes person properties, right? But all of it's speaking of their relations of how they're distinguished, right? So there's distinctness, yet a shared unity so that the Father is God, the Spirit is God, the whole, and the Son is God, right? So as you unpack that, right? One God, one in nature, one in essence, one in being, there are three in person, and person is a tricky term, right? When we speak of the persons of the Godhead, right? We're speaking of the threeness, Father, Son, and Spirit. But I just encourage you, I'll just throw this out here. Don't think of it in terms of the way we use person in sort of popular usage applied to ourselves. That's not how it's being used here, right? When we speak of persons in terms of ourselves at the popular level, we often will speak of persons as individuals. Who is that person? And you're saying, who is that individual? That's not how it applies here. We don't have three individuals. We have one God, right? We also use person in terms of personality traits. What kind of person are they, right? Um, and then you have other uses of it. That's not how it's being used here. Person is referring to Father, Son, and Spirit, but it's the language of the church that tries to capture, right? The Father is a person or an eye or a subject of the nature. And one who acts through the nature, right? The Son is a subject of the nature. So the idea of a subject. Yet, right, when we think of persons usually as individuals, we load up into person, you know, a whole mind and will and psychology. That's not being loaded here, right? The persons are Father, Son, and Spirit who act through the divine nature. They share that divine nature equally. The divine nature is where we have talk about the attributes of God and the perfections of God and the capacities of God. So Father, Son, and Spirit act through the same eternity, the same power, the same knowledge, the same will, yet... The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father, is not the Spirit. Right? How are they then distinguished? They're not distinguished by what they share, right? Because they share equally all that is God. That's why each person is God, right? They're distinguished by how they relate as persons. That's how the church is trying to pick up the Father is Father, he has really just developing father, paternity. In scripture, he is presented always as first. Not first in terms of more important, but first as the one who initiates. The one who is the father to the son. The son is the one who is from the father. The son never acts independently, but he is always from. And that's an eternal, eternal relationship. The church has called this eternal generation. He is the one who is from. It doesn't happen in time. It's an eternal relationship of love and fellowship. Yet there's a shared relationship of father to the son. The father 
has a son. The son has a father, and that's what makes them distinct. And the spirit, the spirit as we look at scripture is the one who is from the father and the son, right? He is not exactly as the son. He is distinct, yet he shares the very same nature, right? And from all eternity, before there was ever a beginning, there's eternal dynamism within God, if you want to put it that way. There's eternal relations within God. The Father to the Son. The Son from the Father. The Spirit from the Father and Son. And a shared glory, right? A shared love. A shared communication. Now, I have no idea what it means for the persons of the Godhead to communicate. But there's communication, right? And there is now a fullness of life and being. God is complete within himself. He didn't have to create a universe to satisfy his love and communication. He's complete. He chose to share that with us, right? And that's how the triune God is presented. And as then God in his eternal plan, right, before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1, we read how God elected us before the foundation of the world. Well, that's the eternal plan, right? In that eternal plan, he planned to create a world, which we see in Genesis 1. He planned to um, govern this world and to lead it to a consummated end, a new heavens, a new earth, right? He planned the plan of redemption. And in every action of God in creation, this is now God in himself from eternity, but now God in creation. We speak of this in terms of the plan or the economy, right? The outworking of his plan. The one God acts who is three, right? In creation, you're not to think that the Father is only the creator and the Son and Spirit sort of look on, right? Or in redemption, it's not just the Son who's our Redeemer. It's true. He becomes the incarnate one. He is our covenant head. Yet the Father's just as important in redemption. He elects, right? Uh, the Spirit applies. I mean, all of that's redemption, right? It's redemption accomplished. It's redemption applied. It's one act of redemption by Father, Son, and Spirit. Yet in every action of creation and a revelation and redemption and judgment, all three persons are involved inseparably, <laughs> necessarily, yet, yet there's distinction, right? One passage that makes this very clear is Colossians 1, right? Now, there's many, many passages we'd have to turn to, so I'm just giving you one illustration of this. But Colossians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul lays out for us uh, the sort of father-son relationship. We haven't, uh, it hasn't unfolded all for us, the, the, the Spirit of God here, and that's found in other places. But it's very interesting here in this glorious text that presents to us the deity of Christ, right? He is the sovereign, the son of God from eternity is the creator of the universe. He is the sustainer of the universe, right? He then in verse 18 takes on humanity and becomes the redeemer of the church and so on, right? But in these first verses of 15 through 17, you have to read them very, very carefully, right? The apostle Paul is giving us profound Trinitarian theology at this point. It's not just about the Son of God, side by side is the work of the Father and the Son, right? We see that particularly if you go back a few verses before Colossians 1.15, where the Apostle Paul is giving thanks to the Father, who's qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. What has happened, right? Well, the Father has rescued us. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. He has brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, 
right? So the Father has rescued through the Son, right? And he's brought us into that kingdom where we have the forgiveness of sins. And then he goes on to speak about the Son. The Son is, he is, verse 15, the image of the invisible God. Another way of saying deity, right? Firstborn over all creation, which speaks of his supremacy over because, right, in him, in the Son, all things were created. And then he lists all things. That means everything. Heaven, earth, visible, invisible, thrones, powers, so on. All things were created. Very clearly here, the Son of God's not part of creation. He is the creator of all things, right? He is the one who is God the Son, right? Yet notice in verse 16, often it's missed, right? It's sort of put in English in a kind of passive sense, but in the Greek it's put in the passive tense. All things were created is in passive, right? A divine passive. Another way of saying that is through the Son, in the Son, God creates. The Father through the Son creates. So in the one act of creation, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Father through Son by Spirit, boom, speaks, and there's creation. That is what is meant by all three acting together. And here's a perfect text that speaks of it. You also have it in verse 17. He is before all things. In him all things hold together. That's a reference to the Son sustains the universe. But again, it's put in the passive. So it's not as if the Son is the creator and the Father's not. Or the Son is the sustainer and the Father's not. No. The one true and living God is creator, is sustainer, is Lord. It's Father through Son by Spirit, right? That's how we then understand the doctrine of the Trinity, right? One God, three persons, not distinguished by their being, their nature. They're God equal, yet they're distinguished by persons, persons in relation, persons from all eternity sharing, right? Love and communication and so on. How do we know this is true from Scripture, right? If you have Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door, right? <laughs> They'll say, um, do you believe in the Trinity? You say, yes. Where is Trinity found in the Bible? And your answer should be, well, the word Trinity is not found anywhere, right? But the doctrine of the Trinity is found everywhere. Right? Just because the word isn't there, right? The word Trinity is a theological term, but ultimately the whole teaching of the Bible. You can't make sense of the Bible, as we said, apart from the Trinity, right? So the Trinity is found everywhere. It's given to us, though. God has revealed himself to us over time. Through the Old Testament, through the New. We uniquely, obviously, supremely see God as triune with the coming of the Son of God, right? With the incarnation. The giving of the Spirit. So in the New Testament, who God is is triune. That's why in the Great Commission, the name, Father, Son, and Spirit, the singular name, is, is now the full self-disclosure of God that has now happened over time. But it's not as if the Old Testament doesn't teach or at least hint at, right? God is triune. It's not as if this is brand new and nothing related to the old. No, if we were to work through the Old Testament, there's hints, there's shadows. It gets unfolded so that when you come to the new, it's exactly what the old was hinting at, but now brought to full light, full bloom, and so on. But let's start just by looking at a few places in John's gospel to see just how the Gospel of John unfolds, right? In some sense, the doctrine of the Trinity now come in terms of 
the coming of Christ, right? So the opening verses of John 1, right? Which goes back to creation, right? In the beginning was the Word. And we know that Word in John's Gospel is identified with the Son of God. The Word may flesh our Lord Jesus Christ, right? So in the beginning was the Word. And this in the beginning is saying before there was ever time, before there was ever creation. From eternity there was always the Word. But is the Word alone? No, the Word is with God. You say, okay, now there's two, right? The Word is there from eternity, but the Word is with God, face to face with God. There's some kind of relation here from all eternity. Yet, should we think of them now as two gods? No, the Word was God, right? So now you have the Word is God. God, and the reference to God here would be picked up as the Father. The Father is God, right? But there are distinctions, right? Face-to-face, -face, relation, persons, yet equality, right? And then you have in verse 2, he was with God in the beginning, relation. Through him, again, there's the inseparable. Through him, all things were made. God through the word. <laughs> you go back to Genesis, right? Yeah, you can't read a whole doctrine of the Trinity in from Genesis 1, yet it's very interesting, isn't it? The opening verses of Genesis, in the beginning, God. The word for God there is Elohim in the plural. You don't have to have that form of the name of God in the plural. In other places, it's singular. Why the plural? And then, of course, you have singular verbs that follow after it. You think, hmm, this is not proper grammar. What's going on here? Well, we have God create Right? And then you have the Spirit of God brooding over in verse 2. And then how does God create? By successive days, God speaks. <laughs> There's word, isn't it? God speaks, boom, first day. God speaks, second day, right? This is exactly what's going on here, but now we have a fuller sense of this, right? How does God create? The triune God, Father, through his word. By the Spirit, right? I mean, that's what you have here. And John is now seeing this more clearly because now the Word has become flesh. Verse 14, he's dwelt among us. Uh, verse 18, no one has ever seen God in the sense of God's nature. But now this Son, this Word, who is the only begotten one, who is God, right? That's a reference here. Who is at the Father's side, right? And he's been there from all eternity now in space and time, right? He takes on flesh, right? And he says to the disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, right? Well, it doesn't mean he's the same as the Father, but to see the Son is to see the glory of God because they share the very same deity, right? So here you have these opening verses. Now, in chapter 3 of John, you have unpacking of the Spirit. You have the Spirit. This gets tied to the Old Testament. Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus. John 3, 5, and so on. To enter the kingdom of God, you need to be born from above. Well, how does that come about? Well, it comes by an act of God. God must give spiritual life. But who is the person who does that? The Spirit of God. You see, closely aside here is the Son of God. Now the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God must give life. This isn't just Another name for God in action. Yes, it is. But this is something distinct. The Spirit of God now brings life 
to people, who brings them to the Son of God, who brings glory to the Father and so on. That gets unpacked for us, right? John 5. As you turn to John 5, verse 16 through 30, here's a passage that is it's just, I mean, you could spend years on this passage, right? Where Jesus himself is, is, is giving you an insight. <laughs> he's, he's, he's letting you in on the father-son relationship, right? The father-son relationship that's been there forever, right? It's said in the context in verse 16 and, and earlier in the chapter of healing on Sabbath. Jesus healed on the Sabbath. Religious leaders were ticked. <laughs> you violated the law. You've broken the commands. Jesus says, not so fast, right? I've not violated any command, right? My father is at work, he says. Even to this present day, I'm too working. I haven't broken anything. And you say, well, that's sort of a strange response. Why is that significant here? Well, the Jews certainly see it as significant. In verse 18, where they not only say, you broke the Sabbath, but in making that statement, you made yourself equal with God. Well, how did he make himself equal with God? Well, Jewish right, theology, and rightly so, uh, the Sabbath only applied to humans. It doesn't apply to God, thankfully. If, if God ceased to work on every Saturday or every Sabbath day, the universe would collapse, wouldn't it? So obviously, the Sabbath obedience only applies to creatures. It doesn't apply to God. That's why Jesus says, my father's at work. You're not complaining that he broke the Sabbath. He says he's doing it all the way to this very day. So I am too at work. Now you think, my goodness, he is now claiming the right and prerogative of the Father of God. That's exactly right. This is a claim of deity. Right? And then he goes on to speak, though, of his relation to the Father. I tell you the truth, he says in verse 19, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing, right? Now, some have taken that as, well, Jesus is speaking of inferiority. No, he's not. He just told you that he's doing everything the father's doing. In fact, the next phrase here says, whatever the father does, the son does. The father creates the universe, the son does. The father judges the universe, the son does. I mean, that's, I mean, you don't have any less deity here. This is God equal with the father, right? Yet, I think what you have here is you have relation. The Son, always, from eternity, never has acted on his own. He's acted from the Father. The Father, too, never acts on his own. He always acts through the Son. That's how these relations are, are worked out. And then as Christ comes, the Son of God comes, then he obeys the Father's will. And, and you even see it more in terms of his work in the incarnation. Yet there has been from eternity person distinction of Father and Son. And that's what Jesus is referring to us to here. Even as you go down into verse 26. For as the Father has life in himself, not only God has life in himself, but the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, right? What does this mean? Well, this has to be seen as an eternal relationship, right? The Father has life in himself, the Son is deity, he has life in himself, and so that, right, there's God equal, yet distinction, right? Jesus will then say in John 8, 58, right, takes on the very name of God before Abraham was, I am. Equality, yet obviously he's the son to the father. There's distinction, right? Uh, as you see it in John 14, John 14, we then see some emphasis on the spirit of God. The spirit of God, as it's unpacked for us in John's gospel, as you have father and son that are inseparable. Right? Distinct, but inseparable. 
So you cannot think of the work of the Son tied to the work of the Father apart from the Spirit, right? All three acting together to redeem, to save. We have this in verse uh, 16 of John 14. I will ask the Father. He will give you another counselor. That's the Spirit of God. He will be with you forever. John 14, 26. But the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. So here's the Spirit who sent. But he sent in the name of the Son. You can't have the Spirit without the Son, but the Father who's sending, right? All three together, right? Will teach you all things and remind you of this, right? This is precisely what we saw in Ephesians 1, right? In the great plan of redemption, Father through Son by Spirit. Different roles as it's worked out, yet it's one act of redemption to save us. Or turn to 1 Corinthians 8. 1 Corinthians 8, you have... The Apostle Paul, as one who clearly teaches, right? There's one true and living God, but as he now is putting together all of the revelation now seen in Christ and the giving of the Spirit, he now in 1 Corinthians 8 says, right? And he affirms from the Old Testament, the Shema, there's one God, right? Uh, Hear, O Israel, our Lord is one. He's picking that up where he says, yet for us in verse 6 of chapter 8, there is but one God. But then how should we understand this God? The Father, from whom all things came and whom we live. There is but one Lord, Jesus Christ. Even the title Lord is the name of God. Through whom all things came and through whom we live. Notice the parallel. The same Father, the same Son are the one God. Right? Through whom we live, through whom we came, and so on. And then you can add the Spirit. He does that in the benediction in 2 Corinthians, 13, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14, where it's the Father, the grace of God, the Father through the Son by the fellowship of the Spirit, right? So we have through the Old New Testament, right, teaching regarding the full revelation of the Trinity, right? If we had time, we could look back at the Old Testament and see it unfolded for us. We mentioned John 1. Uh, but you have ultimately the whole messianic passages from the Old Testament. The coming of Messiah is the Son of God. But as you work through the Old Testament, this Messiah is more than a human. He is human, but he also has the name of the Lord. Remember Psalm 110? Uh, David writes this and says, The Lord says to my Lord. Right? Who is this Lord? Right? This Lord sits at God's right hand. That's, that's deity. That's authority, right? And you see this over and over and over again. The Son of God in the Old Testament takes on the names of God. Remember Isaiah 9, Christmas time, you know, Handel's Messiah, where he is the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince. That, those are all titles of deity applied to the Son of God. Who, then when he comes in history, we say, who is Jesus? He is the eternal Son who now has become human. He pours out the Spirit. So the doctrine of the Trinity is taught right across the Bible, right? We can look at specific texts that say how the Son is God, how the Spirit is God. And as we put all of this together, we have to say there's one true and living God who is three persons. Right? Now it's application to us, right? Lots of application. First, <laughs> without the Trinity, right? We sort of began here. You don't have the God of the Bible, right? You don't have the true and living God. And this is no small issue, right? Think of Jesus as in John 5, 23. He says, if you honor the Father, which obviously the Jewish people did, 
you will honor the son, which they didn't. If you do not honor the son, you don't have the father, right? To have the God of the Bible, you have to have father, son, and Holy Spirit, right? To not have this, right, is to have a false God, right? And to have a false God is to not have the Son of God or the Spirit of God or the Father. It's not to have eternal life, right? To be have to get God right. And of course, at the heart of the Christian view of God as the triune God is the God who needs nothing but chooses to create and to save us, right? That is at the heart of God. That has to be so clear. Otherwise, we'll never understand, as we said, salvation. We'll never understand the Bible storyline and so on, right? Tied to that is, of course, salvation issues, right? So getting God right, but also salvation. We, if you get the Trinity wrong, you're going to get the doctrine of salvation wrong. You're going to get the divine Savior, the divine Spirit wrong, right? You are not going to have a cross. You are not going to have substitutionary atonement. You're not going to have regenerative work of the Spirit. None of that. Everything collapses, the whole message of salvation. And if there's no, we don't get this right, eventually we have no standing before the true and living God who is triune, right? What standing do we have apart from the divine Savior who has acted on our behalf and the divine Spirit who's applied, right? You cannot be a Christian and deny the Trinity, right? You just can't, right? You, you, the whole, you, you have a different gospel, right? And then as we think of it in terms of our own lives, right? If this is the case, right? That God is the triune God, it has to affect how we talk about God and how we talk to God, right? Think of prayer. So much of our prayer life, we get confused, right? We confuse the persons and so on. We act Unitarian. But there's a pattern to prayer in Scripture. And it's Trinitarian, right? The Lord Jesus tells us to call upon the Father, right? But we do so through the Son, and by the Spirit, right? There's a few times in the Bible where the Son of God is directly addressed in prayer. And it's not inappropriate to then say, Oh, Son, we worship you. But of course, we would also do so of the Father and the Spirit as well. But for the most part, our prayers modeled or follow the pattern of Father through Son by Spirit. You think of Ephesians 2.18. For through Christ, through Him... We have access to the Father by the Spirit. There's the pattern, right? So we have to work hard in our prayer life to come to the Father through the Son, by the Spirit. Worship of the one true and living God who is three. Right? And in our singing, right? our singing, our hymns, our praising God, right? They're always Trinitarian. Right? I mean, yes, we praise each of the persons, that's true. But eventually, right, it's the one God that we praise who is triune. So our worship, our praise, our singing, our thinking, our living. And then, of course, we are brought into the glory of it is, we'll finish with John 15. The glory of all of this is that this triune God who has been before the beginning... <laughs> who has had perfect of love and fellowship and communication, did not need us, the glory of our salvation is that he is chosen by God's, by his own grace, right? His sovereign grace, total initiative to share himself with us, which he did not have to do. And you get a sense of this in John 15, 
verses 9 to 11, where the father, the son is speaking about the father's love for him and the sharing of that with us. As the father has loved me, so I have loved you. Right? See that? There's been intra-Trinitarian love from eternity that now the son in his coming in history and redeeming us and the father's election of us and the spirit's application to us now is shared with us. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you'll remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this, that your joy may be made and you may be made complete, right? So here we have love and obedience and joy because the triune God has chosen to not only create, but to share himself with us, share himself with sinners like us to choose us, to call us to be in union with Christ, to seal that to us by the Spirit, so that for all eternity, we will know something of, something of, we'll never, ever, ever exhaust what God was in himself, but we'll know something of a shared glory that God had within himself. We will know that in some sense and experience that as glorified creatures can experience it, yet we will experience that in a new heavens and earth. What a future, what a glory, what a, what a God that has done all this for us. And it's because he is triune, right? We must, must, must get the doctrine of the Trinity right. It matters, doctrine matters, this is life and death. And we glory in not just a Unitarian notion of God, some abstract notion, we glory in the triune God who has made himself you know, who, who has come close to us, right? Who has redeemed us in Christ Jesus. Oh, may you know him who is life eternal. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have disclosed yourself as Father, Son, and Spirit. That this is who you are from eternity and we can see something of its glory and something of its importance and something of its utter significance, especially as it's worked out in the plan of salvation and redemption and so on. And we have the privilege of knowing you, knowing a shared love and fellowship and glory that we can't even fathom. But we, as your redeemed people, share in that in some sense in our salvation in Christ and our redemption in him. May this encourage us this day. May we rightly think of you. May we uh, wrestle with, even in this beginning sense of thinking through the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, think through it, read scripture, read good books so that we may know you aright and glory in you, our Father, you, our Son, you, Holy Spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you very much, Dr. Wellam. A vast, vast topic. You did a nice job opening up the scriptures and letting us look into it.